Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we are deconstructing Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, but before we get into that, we do want to make sure that we give a shout out to Dan Zare and Dan Z Media, uh, who was absolutely instrumental in helping us focus what we really wanted to do moving forward as we transition from Coruscant Community College into Reading Between the Reels. Uh, in our last kind of mini episode, we mentioned that this was a natural progression for us, this evolution into this version. Uh, but we do want to also acknowledge that uh, we had a conversation with Dan, and that was absolutely key in helping us realize exactly what we want to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it was a, a situation where uh, Dan, who um, is, is part of Coffee with Kenobi, uh, a very well-known podcast, has a lot of that experience that we didn't have. And it was just really uh, insightful to talk to someone who had the kind of experience and could kind of, we could bounce ideas off of and, and really have some good deep conversations about what we wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll put some links to, to his stuff in the show notes. Uh, and, you know, we're going to hopefully have him on uh, as an upcoming guest when we get to the sequel trilogy. That was something we kind of already talked about. So we'll get that hammered out. And that's something that you guys can look forward to as well. So speaking of A New Hope, though, let's go ahead and jump into cinematography. And Matt, what did you have that stuck out, stood out to you as regarding cinematography for A New Hope? So, you know, Star Wars A New Hope is, I kind of feel like it's a difficult movie to kind of deconstruct a little bit uh, for a couple different reasons. First, I mean, you know, it's been around for a long time. It's one of the most influential movies that exists today. I mean, modern blockbusters are in, in a lot of ways born from Star Wars. Uh, it it kind of grabbed the zeitgeist uh, like no movie had before it. And the number of filmmakers who have come afterward who were so deeply influenced by Lucas's work in A New Hope, I don't know if you can really put a number on it. Um, and so, you know, when I'm taking a look at this and I'm thinking about the cinematography of A New Hope, I had to really simplify it for myself. And I had to ask myself, okay, A New Hope is this classic. Why? Why was it a classic? What was uh, done so well? What maybe wasn't done as well? And there were actually two things in cinematography that kind of fell into both categories for me. And so it's like, okay, if I have to say something, it's like, what? what is one thing that, uh, just bothers me a little bit about A New Hope. And it, it's a little bit of the pacing. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this when R2-D2 and C-3PO are on the sand crawler, And it just kind of lags a little bit. It just slows down. You have this rip-roaring entry into the film uh, with the Rebel Cruiser being attacked by the, the Star Destroyer. And it's, it's one of the most iconic entries into any movie ever. And, and then it kind of grinds to a halt. And it's not all bad or anything, uh, but I do feel like it, it kind of slows down a little bit. Um, one time we were talking and you mentioned the fact that like Luke, the main character, doesn't even show up for about 20 minutes. Right. That's a very slow start. Now, on the other hand, um, the, the editing is fantastic. And I think the editing of the film really saves it in a way uh, and it's just extraordinary. And, and part of the reason that goes with that is the, the camera work itself, the actual movement of the camera is fairly static. And you have kind of talked about it as documentary style. 
And I know exactly what you mean by that, where it is a little bit more static, where the camera doesn't move too much. But I don't even know if that's an accurate description of it anymore. We have documentaries that are incredibly cinematic and uh, dynamic camera movements. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very stationary, very static as far as the camera movement, but the editing is just on fire. It's quick, it's sharp. The editing cuts right when it needs to. And a perfect moment, a perfect example of this is the TIE fighter attack. When, you know, it's kind of famous that um, Lucas and the other creators of the film used kind of stock footage of World War II fighters and use that as to help them with the, the pacing and the timing of their editing and the cuts. And it, it's so perfectly cut that even though the shot itself might be fairly pedestrian, the editing gives it an energy and a pace that the actual shot itself doesn't. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, as you're saying that, it, it makes me wonder, we talked about how influential the film is and how documentaries were a certain way. And now we've talked about how they're more modern. And I wonder how many of those documentarians are actually you know, influenced by, by Lucas's work, even though they're, you know, the subject matter is totally different. Probably but yeah, that was one of the, you know, that, that was one of the things that I, I did notice on this rewatch is, is that it is not as, as documentarian, uh, if, that's, if that's the right word, um, as I remember, or the reputation is that there are certain shots that, I mean, even the TIE fighter attack, there are certain things where the camera moves a little bit to follow the TIE fighters. But some of the like, most iconic shots, you know, things like the, the first person point of view through the Death Star, uh, through the trench run on the Death Star, is it's, it's, the camera's moving all over the place. You know, and it, it definitely takes away from this. I'm just going to set the camera in a corner and, and film the actors. To you're, I'm going to put you in the film. Like it becomes this first person, super uh, immersive experience. Um, so that, I mean, that's one thing that definitely stood out to me. And again, I yeah, like like kind of like you said, like well, what can I find that's different? Right? What what kind of breaks the mold of? Well, a new hope is this thing, right? Well, so what are the things that have maybe haven't been talked about? Um, so that's that's one of my big things I noticed in cinematography, and then the other great camera move that I loved is where where Tarkin walks into the conference room uh, right before Vader chokes Mahdi, and they have that discussion about following up to the plans, and and the camera pans around the table to, to kind of show you all the Imperial officers, and uh, I think it's like the I think it might be the first time that you have that type of move. Most of the time, the uh, prior to that, the camera's been pretty stationary, and then all of a sudden, the camera's doing something. Um, and now, as I'm saying that, I just remember there's another one that does that too, and that's you know the tracking shot that happens when they go into the Mos Eisley Cantina as well. So there are a handful of things, and like the more you think about it, you start to peel it back a little bit, and you're like, wow, there really is a lot more to this than it has. We kind of take it for granted that it is kind of this, you know, this classic film. It's iconic, but you start peeling it back a little bit. There are some, some. They're not a lot, but they're sprinkled in in certain ways where it really adds to to the film. And you had some thoughts about the composition work. Yeah, so um, the one thing that struck me this time too was was the scale. Um, we talked about a lot about this with Rogue One uh, and how it really did a great job of, of playing up how big the Death Star is. And A New Hope does as well. You have a couple of things where um, you see the Millennium Falcon getting pulled into it and like you can't even see the entire Death Star. Uh, and the Millennium Falcon is tiny. And you also see it when the Star Destroyer, which we also know is huge, um, against the Death Star. It's also small. Uh, the escape pod that the droids are in when they're falling to Tatooine becomes very tiny as you're trying to take in the entire uh, shot of the 
of the planet. So just these things, um, just to give you this sense of scale, and it all builds. It goes to this world building thing where you know things are huge, and you can you look at it, you know, from a movie from the from the seventies. Those shots were were really not possible until Lucas and, and company came along and said, "This is what I want. This is what we're going to do." And so it adds to this uh, the verisimilitude of the film. There you go, Dan. I, I threw in verisimilitude um, that it feels real because it's so big, right? It doesn't look like a model. It looks like actual things happening. So, what are some of your thoughts on the sound? So, sound. You know, it's much like. Uh, we talked about cinematography. Like, what can you talk about with the effects? I mean, you have to basically talk about everything because it's the first time you hear a lightsaber, first time you hear a blaster, when they go to hyperspace, the droids, Vader's breathing. I mean, what can be more iconic than than Darth Vader breathing? And, you know, it's all of these things that have, have entered the pop culture. Um, you mentioned Zeitgeist earlier. I mean, it's these things that are, that are so iconic. I'm going to keep saying that word. Um, but they stand out. And now we kind of take them for granted. Yeah, that's what a lightsaber sounds like. But if you hear it, you immediately know what it is, right? For any, any context at all, you hear that and you, under, you understand and recognize what that is. So I mainly looked at soundtrack. Uh, that was the thing I wanted to focus on with sound. And, you know, when we, when we teach this to kids, um, we usually have them focus on leitmotif because Williams uses it masterfully uh, in this film. And there's, of course... Uh, you have Leia's theme, you have the Rebel Fanfare, Death Star has its own theme, there's an original Imperial theme, but I think the one we really want to talk about uh, is the Force theme. So, Matt, what do you think about the Force theme? What are your thoughts on on that for this film? What pops into my mind, and you already kind of mentioned how iconic the sound is, and, and again, this is something I kind of struggled with a little bit. Uh, where do you go to talk, you know, wh- wh- what path do you take to talk about such a classic movie? And you mentioned the lightsaber sound uh, design. You mentioned Vader breathing. And what really popped out to me was the music. I don't think this movie becomes a classic without Williams' score. And of all the music in A New Hope, the one that grabbed me the most was the forest theme in the binary sunset moment. And, and that's, that, that's what stood out to me. That was the one that really grabbed my attention. And I was thinking about it, and it's been one of my favorite scenes in all of the Star Wars movies. I think it's because, you know, we we talk about how music is really the emotion of the film. That one scene, in my opinion, is the long line of Star Wars. If you're summarizing Star Wars in one scene, it is that right there, where Luke is walking up on the hill. You've got the twin suns setting down on Tatooine. Uh, There's a kind of beautiful sky behind him the wind's blowing and you hear the williams score just swell and it's all about this sense of adventure the sense of moving beyond yourself to something bigger more important and i think it's such a universal feeling that is captured in that moment of of wanting more for yourself wanting more for your life to do something that's meaningful with it and i i just can't think of anyone who can't at some level connect with that and i i don't, I don't know if i could give a more uh a more ringing endorsement of of someone's music than to say that it, it emotionally connected with me and i imagine it, it emotionally connects with basically everyone who watches it 
because they instantly recognize the emotions that's going through Luke, the emotions in that moment. And, and that's, that's Star Wars right there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I can't really add to that too much except for to ask you when you say it's like Star Wars in a nutshell, I didn't even say it as beautifully as you just said it. Do you mean a new hope or do you mean the saga? Because I think I mean it could everything. be because it could be for everything, right? I mean, it's it really is. It captures the prequel trilogy, it captures the sequel trilogy, it captures every everything that Star Wars is 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 good is good at, right? It is that hero's journey. It is that connecting emotionally. It is that wanting something better, you know, wanting to be more, and you know, finding that the strength to be that. So that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah and I, and I would say if you're adding a word to that nutshell of Star Wars, it's hope. Right. Right. And if you think about the main characters of the story, Jin, uh, Ray, Poe, Finn, Luke, Leia, Han, all of them, Anakin, young Anakin, of course. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, Padme. I mean, all of these people are trying to be something bigger and better than where they started. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, that that and the Force theme is used so beautifully in this film. I mean, it's used in in all the Star Wars films, and and I think it. And I'm gonna have to to watch more carefully as I go through um, the rest of the original trilogy and into the sequel trilogy because what I noticed in this one that I had never noticed before was just how much it really uh, seems to mark points of Luke's destiny. Um, we talked about this a little bit before uh, that. Uh, off air that when Leia puts the disc in R2 that you hear the force theme for the first time in the film. And it's very much like, Hey, like destiny is getting involved here, right? We hear it when Kenobi introduces himself. We have previously heard it during twin sunsets, right? Binary sunsets when we know Luke is wanting something more and he's a, you know, he's not quite been given the opportunity to, but he's, kind of had the conversation about it, you know, just with his aunt and uncle, that's what's just happened. Like he thinks there might be something more with the droids and then maybe he won't get to do that. And so he's, he's wanting to, and he's on the cusp of getting to go on this adventure. And then we hear it again, uh, the burning homestead, which is one of my favorite ones. When, uh, when he comes back already given Kenobi the excuse that he's not going to go and, and finds that he has nothing left, uh, when he gets home, that his aunt and uncle are dead and you see him, and that really wide shot of him just, you know, so almost silhouetted uh, against, you can see the smoke and, and the home set on fire. And, and you hear that like very, um, it's a very emotional, but it's a very, it's sad, but it's also, there's this resolve to it um, at a version of the force theme. And I find it interesting that that's the version that shows up again in uh, force awakens when Ray catches the lightsaber, that it's that same really slow kind of plotting, but, like super important. It's got a level of gravitas, uh, especially when you tie it into, you know, Luke is, Luke is finally on his path at this point. And I think that maybe that's kind of what the rhyme is when you get to, to Ray. Like she's finally accepted the path uh, that she's supposed to be on. So that's, I mean, what more, what more can you say? The force theme is amazing. And there's other, there's other light motifs as well, but I think that one, I think we've unpacked that quite a bit. So moving on to uh, uh, performance and acting a little bit, we kind of have our sliding scale of acting where you have static, dramatic, and melodramatic. And for the most part, I think that all the actors are kind of hitting the emotional beats that they're supposed to be hitting. 
they're all fairly dramatic. I think it verges on the melodramatic a tiny bit. Uh, one of the things uh, in the documentary Empire Dreams, kind of looking behind the scenes of, of the Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy, uh, Lucas told his actors often faster and more intense on the set of A New Hope. And you kind of see that a little bit. Uh, my mind immediately jumps to right after the trash compactor scene. And everyone's kind of yelling at each other. And Leia's yelling at Han and, and Luke's yelling at both of them. And Han's yelling back at Leia and yelling at Chewie. And, and, and there's that kind of just hyper emotional state. And it makes sense in the context of the story. So, you know, I, I don't think that it, it's melodramatic or anything. Uh, but the, the actors are, are all uh, bringing their A game, I think. They're, they all do a very good job. Obi-Wan is fantastic. I think he he brings um, a very calm presence to the film. And I think, again, you know, thinking about like, why is this a classic movie? I think one of the strongest parts of the performance is the fact that the characters are so clear. There's a sort of clarity in who these people are. And, and you know, looking at the prequels, that was one of my bigger complaints is that the characterization felt muddy. It, it felt muddled and I wasn't quite sure there were too many characters who were exhibiting this kind of stoic, nothing's going to kind of phase them. There was, it was very static acting. And I, and I feel like A New Hope breaks that mold and you have a very clear sense of who Luke is, of who Leia and Han are, uh, who Obi-Wan, Vader, uh, you just get a sense of who these are as people. Yeah, and I, I would even point to, as you're saying that, I, I just thought of the costuming, you know, that it's, you talk about clearly defined characters. I mean, Vader, all in black when he enters uh, enters the the Rebel cruiser, uh, the Tana 4, and it's very clear that he's the bad guy, right? There's no question about that. And you see Luke and Leia in white, like good guys are in white. And you even have, you know, Han, who's kind of verging a little bit back and forth. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Uh, that he's kind of got black on the outside and white underneath, right? That the, he's got a heart of gold underneath. So some of these things are are super obvious, but it's like it's there's uh, an intentionality to it, right? That you know, like this character will be this, and it follows through. Kenobi is very much he fits that uh, the archetype of the mentor so perfectly. You know, he's he's so clearly drawn, and he and and Peter Cushing, you know, having both those people in there. Uh, to lend the gravitas uh, to this film too, right? We talked a little bit about, you just mentioned how it can kind of verge into melodrama a little bit um, because it's, and it's outlandish, you know, and, and Hamill is as great as he is. And we talked a little bit about this. Yeah. He's fantastic in last Jedi. He's not less seasoned here, um, but he completely sells it, right? He is, he goes for broke uh, in this film, but he also has, uh, you know, Alec Guinness to bounce off, and so it's a little bit like the straight man in a comedy duo. You get you got to have um, both of those elements to really make it work. And having those two um, seasoned English actors in this film, um, I think, just really kind of solidifies solidifies the cast. But everybody's great. I mean, everybody feels authentic. I think we can both agree on that. And, and to bounce off of that, you know, talking about Mark Hamill, I think it's it's pretty amazing how whiny he is in the film. And there's moments um, when I, I, he's, they're in the Falcon, 
right, with uh, with Obi Wan. And there's this moment when uh, a warning light comes on, and I think I think Luke says something like, you know, uh, what's that or something? And what's Han that flashing? Like, yeah, <laughs> slaps his hand away. Yeah, and it, it it it's just that moment of like treating Luke like such a child. Yep, in a way, like don't touch that. Slap his hand away. And I, I actually really like that. I, I think not only does Hamill sell it, but it, you know, looking back now, of course, we know that this is the beginning of a beautiful character arc. Uh, but you have this kind of world weary smuggler who isn't a bad person, but he's still looking out for number one. You have Obi Wan as this wise mentor who knows way more about the galaxy uh, than you would ever suspect. And then you've got the whiny farm boy who's looking for. To, you know, to make a name for himself. And it's just kind of a wonderful dynamic. And and you see that in the, the, um, the Death Star when uh, Han and Luke are arguing about whether to go see, save Princess Leia. And just that conversation alone gives such clarity to who these two people are. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you can see, um, you know, Han's posture in there, like, kicking back when he even when he's being told like princess leia is going to die and he has that well better her than me right i mean how 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 much you can tell who he is in that single sentence she's going to kill her well better her than me right and then you see but she's rich and you see you know luke just start and it's funny too because like you can see luke actually kind of manipulate han a little bit that luke even though he's kind of this naive farm boy is also a little bit oh maybe i have a swing i can do to kind of push his button a little bit uh, and it's funny, you know, as you're, as you're talking about Luke and, and being whiny, and I agree he is, but it, like not in a bad way, which is kind of weird, is yeah, I've been thinking about how when I was really young, first saw these movies, that Luke was my favorite character by far. And then when I got into high school, Han became my favorite character because he's the cool one, right? And Luke's a dork. He's, he's, he's a nerd. You know, he's not the hero yet. He's on the hero's journey. And I didn't know about the hero's journey at the time. But now Luke, coming full circle, in, even in A New Hope, I love Luke. Luke is my favorite character now after seeing all these things. And so it's kind of like you go through these different phases and certain things appeal to you. Where now Han's like, he's kind of a jerk, right? <laughs> he ends up having, you know, he ends up having a good side. But the things that made you, and by you I mean me, uh, like hesitant to, to appreciate Luke, I don't, I don't have those issues anymore because I've seen, seen the whole picture too, right? You well, see where think- he goes. And I think that just speaks to why it's a classic. I mean, as you know, as the viewer ages, there's different aspects of the different characters in the movie that you grow to appreciate in different ways. Absolutely. And I also think, you know, we talked a little about um, we get to see the, the the bigger picture, right? So we get to see Luke in, in Last Jedi and, and we'll get there. I'm very much looking forward to talking that with, with you. But both of us love that movie and both of us love Luke's portrayal in that movie. And so seeing where he goes, it gives you this layer of context, right? You kind of see the bigger picture. And one thing I wanted to point out about this too is when the prequels come out and we get young Obi-Wan and we get his backstory, if you will, the conversation, especially with, with Obi-Wan and Han, when they're negotiating you know, passage to the Alderaan system, takes on a whole new meaning. Because if you watch carefully, you can actually see Obi-Wan roll his eyes was Hans bragging about how fast the Millennium Falcon is. And it's, you know, it's funny. You can just kind of almost read on his face, his inner monologue of like, dude, I, I killed Darth Maul twice. Like I fought in the clone wars. I did all of this stuff. Who are you? You, you flew a fast ship one time. 
that's that's nice okay whatever so it's uh, you know and then facial expressions too i mean we looked at we talked we've talked about this a lot i think we talked about this in our cinematography episode oh actually probably our performance episode now that i think about it of obi-wan's performance while he's talking to luke about what happens to the vader and you see kind of that pregnant pause as he he's like what happened to my father and you see him okay what am i going to tell him and that's the way we read it now right okay what version am i going to tell him am i going to tell him the truth and knowing as we do that that's not what he was thinking right because at the time luke and anakin or not luke but anakin and invader were two different people so he's not in the moment Guinness is not thinking okay how do i sell this lie he's telling luke the truth but uh his level of performance is so nuanced that it allows you to to interpret these other things as far as like setting and design the first thing that stands out to me is um i watched a new hope for the first time in 4k and it looks fantastic and there's a for me there was a level of groundedness in in the setting and design that was i really appreciated one of the big complaints about not just the prequels many movies nowadays is that movies feel like there's too much green screen it doesn't feel real it doesn't feel authentic and all the locations in a new hope feel very real there's this kind of dirty griminess uh, the Falcon is a perfect example where it is it is kind of filthy, but it you know it looks lived in. It looks right. like a real thing, and and that's kind of a fantastic uh, feeling to have for this kind of space adventure movie. Yeah, and totally different. You know, it's like the first of its time, a first of its kind. You know, to have that that lived in that used universe is the phrase you know that often they've used, and it's kind of funny that we talk about like dirt is real, right? You're getting this. This earthy dirtiness is the thing that actually makes it feel realistic. And, you know, from here you get things like Ridley Scott's Alien, right? Which totally doesn't look like shiny, polished, even futuristic looks like it could have happened like next in the next decade. And, you know, prior to Star Wars, all these things where you think like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and all of these sci-fi with like the, you know, tinfoil suits and stuff like that. And so we get this, that always felt fake right but now it's it feels real even though it's completely uh you know it's fantasy there's magic in this one but this one feels more real because of the attention to detail um in you know things like the lars homestead which feels like a place you could live right like whatever Amper is doing in the kitchen like i can almost smell it you know it, it feels lived in so does obi-wan's hut it feels like a place that someone would hang out in can almost taste the blue milk. <laughs> almost. Um, and then even, you know, the the Death Star is, it may be the only thing that's kind of dated in the film. Uh, especially when we talk about that control room where, where Han and Luke were, uh, where Luke convinces Han to, to go help Leia. Um, especially like the red, for some reason, that red wall with the light, the blinking lights, looks a little bit dated to me. I mean, I don't care because I love the movie and it's it was, you know, it was in the 70s when this was made. But that's like the one time that really feels like Okay, this is totally on a soundstage. Everything else, as they're walking through the Death Star, and they spend the, the bulk of the movie on, is on the Death Star, it feels like a real place. I mean, what great um, production design to have. It's so simple, too, right? You know, the, the grays and, and the white lights, uh, but it feels like a real place. So I have to ask you, Craig, um, and we've talked about this a little before, and our conversation now will have to be on the more abbreviated side. 
But the uh, issue, I guess you could say, of the special editions. Uh, so, like I said, I, I watched it in 4K for the first time. And the cleanup job, the restoration that they did was amazing. I have, I guess you could say I'm like a, the theatrical cut purist for Star Wars. I like that cut of the film. But I, I do really appreciate a lot of the restoration that they did. As like one small example, uh, I have the old DVDs. I think the last time they released the theatrical cut was on DVD. And that was the last time, uh, the last uh, edition, I should say, I had seen of, of A New Hope. And you can see the boxes around the TIE Fighters as they're flying right. around. It's, it just doesn't look that good. And they really clean that up on the, the 4K uh, release. But a lot of it, I just don't like. Uh, the the dobacks on mm -hmm. Tatooine when the stormtroopers pick up the droid parts and they're like, oh, you know, we found parts of a droid. And you see the dobacks and stuff. That just doesn't add anything for me. And it doesn't look good. So many of the special effects, like, you know, you talk about that control room, I'm willing to forgive it because it's it's the 70s and that's what they had at the time. And, you know, most of the other effects look very good. They have aged very well. Uh, but some of the stuff from the special edition just, in my opinion, haven't. Jabba is another perfect example of something that I just did not need. Yeah, no, the, the Jabba scene is, is problematic for me too, but for really two things. One is that it's a lot of the same dialogue uh, that's in the Greedo scene, um, which, and we've talked about this before, which is awesome that you know Ian Desher brings that up in William Shakespeare's Star Wars. And so when that scene, with the Jabba scene shows up in, in, his, in his book, Han actually makes a, a reference to the fact that it seems like I've just said this before, uh, which he clearly has because most of the dialogue is repeated. Um, and really, most of it I could forgive, except for when he steps on Jabba's tail. Like that, <laughs> I just cringe. That's like, I'm fine with Jabba being there. I'm even kind of fine with Boba Fett, you know, breaking the fourth wall and staring at the camera. Um, that's weird. But it's cool that Boba Fett's in the film, I guess. But when he steps on the thing, like, could you not have Jabba pivot or something? I don't know. I don't know. But for the most part, I, I, I enjoy all the, the extra stuff. I mean, for me, the first time I watched it uh, in the theater, it became a game almost because I'd seen the movie, you know, a hundred times. And so it was, oh, that's new. Okay, that's new. That's, and I missed tons of stuff because most of the things really are, like you mentioned, they're kind of cleanup things, right? Some of them are, are audio fixes or they, they try to fix the, the boxes around the TIE Fighters. And they've done that multiple times. So like the, the DVD special edition still had them. The Blu-ray had it a little bit. The 4K, finally, they're gone. And then you have things like um, the lightsaber um, in the, the training little set, uh, the training scene on the Falcon with the little ball. Uh, in the in the Blu-ray, the lightsaber showed up green, which was bizarre. Uh, and now it's back to blue, finally, with 4K. Um, but that's another like the lightsabers, especially the Obi-Wan the Vader fight, looks so much better. And so I'm kind of like. Well, if I have to give Jabba and to get, you know, if I had to get Jabba in this film to get the rest of it, I'm okay with that. And, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist myself. And so I get how Lucas, is, and he's made this, you know, thing, this comment too of how, you know, art is abandoned, right? It's not really done, it's just abandoned. And so I can kind of get that mentality of, yeah, but if only I could have just done this one thing. Now, some of the choices were like, McGlunky, really? Why does that need to be in there? Like, why can't you just leave that scene alone? But, you know, it's you kind of take the good with the bad, I guess. Well, and like another example are 
of the many changes to the Han and Greedo scene. Right. And uh, I saw a compilation of them once on YouTube. And there's a moment when, or in one of them, when they like really artificially like twerk Han's head to like dodge the blaster bolt or something. Yeah. And and, and for me, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if you have the Mona Lisa, restoration's great, but alteration is not. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's an interesting debate to have because, you know, another another film that I absolutely adore are are all of the Lord of the Rings movies. And I love the, the extended editions of those. And that adds a ton of content and changes the theatrical cut. But I feel like more of that content adds more to the characterization, to the story. Another example of that is our, uh, we've talked about Batman versus Superman off the air, of course. Uh, not for long, though. And, no, not for and long. <laughs> we've talked about how the extended cut of Batman versus Superman is a significantly better film, mostly because it clarifies and, and really creates more cohesion in the actual story. Right. And, and those are important changes to make. And things like the Han scene, Jabba, the Dubaks, I it doesn't add anything to the story. Even, you know, that you said yourself, the Jabba scene is is pretty repetitive. And, and I feel like that kind of stuff is altering for the sake of altering, not with a clear purpose of making the story better. Yeah, I and mean, that's, you know, that's an interesting point. And, and some of it, I think, I think, too, we have to remember that when these came out, we're looking at the release in 97 and it's in the middle of pre-production on the prequels. And so some of these things are probably like, well, if I can get Jabba in this scene and it's, you know, if it works, then, then Jar Jar's a go. Right. And I don't know if that's necessarily exactly the truth, but that, that seems to be a logical through line from this, right. That in a lot of ways uh, you were able to use it like a proven commodity as a testing ground for what's coming next. And so, you know, and also to do it on, on the studio's dime. So, you know, there's, there's, there's multiple reasons why, you know, artistically. Yeah. I think we can probably both agree that that scene ne- doesn't necessarily belong, but I can see, you know, it, for the greater good, like you get that, you get Tarkin and Rogue One, you get any number of things, right. That have, that have showed up later uh, with digital characters. So um, let's characters. I mean, I think we've probably, talked about characters a lot i i did have one question for you though um because i mentioned that luke's my favorite character in this film who's your favorite character in this film you know i thought i thought about that you know i think i think han is is quite a funny character in this movie uh and i really appreciate that about him the scene where he's trying to convince the the uh star destroyer or star uh, death star guards that everything's fine is fantastic (laughs) i mean (laughs) And so it's like, I, I absolutely love, love Han. Um, and it's hard for me because I can't separate in my own mind Luke in Just a New Hope from Luke in all the movies. Right. And so I absolutely adore Luke in all the movies. And I would, you know, if I have to choose, I would probably choose Luke. Yes, yeah, I was wondering if you're going to go with Obi-Wan because I think you've said before Obi-Wan's like maybe your favorite Star Wars character period like overall. But there's I guess there's more there's more context there, right? Because you got you're going to have Ewan McGregor and Clone Wars and Alec and all of these things. And so you look at he's not really in A New Hope very much. Exactly. And yeah. and um you know, as amazing as Alec Guinness is, 
uh, he, he, like you said, he kind of has a small part to play in that mm-hmm. particular movie. You know, he's, he's at the twilight of his life and his life's work where, you know, I, I love the Obi-Wan and Satine stuff from the Clone Wars and in how interesting of kind of a foil that relationship is to Anakin and Padme. I, I think that's uh, awesome storytelling. I love Ewan McGregor in the prequel movies. I think he's the shining star in all those films. Um, other than Chief, of course. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I would say that it's a, it's, it's close to a toss-up overall between Obi-Wan and, and Luke. But in the live-action films, I might have to say Luke overall. So, yeah, speaking of Obi-Wan, uh, when we get to the galaxy, the Force is kind of the main thing that we like to look at. Uh, and we've, we've mentioned this before, and it's something that we like to, to let our students know when we show this in class, that uh, there's new Force abilities in pretty much every film. That's a normal thing that happens. So when you, when you get to Last Jedi and you see Force projection and things like the Dyad, that, that's a natural progression of the way things go. That's how Star Wars has always done the Force. And so uh, in this film, Obi-Wan, it's great how he explains it. Right? He has that little nutshell uh, explanation to Luke, very, very, very concise. And one thing that I love is that in the very next scene, you see Vader force choke Admiral Mahdi, as if to say that thing we just talked about that's important. I'm going to show you what that is. But for the most part, you know, the force is is very benign uh, in this film. Like you see, Luke sees the remote, and then Obi Wan is sent. Most of the time, it's it's sensing. It's kind of an extra sensory perception thing. Obi-Wan senses empathetically Alderaan's destruction. Vader senses Obi-Wan. Then you have Obi-Wan joins the Force, right? And then communicates with Luke. And we don't really get even what that means forever, uh, which is, I think is interesting because we just assume, well, that's, you know, when we see Yoda die later, spoiler alert, when Jedi die, they disappear, right? Uh, and I remember when, when Qui-Gon dies, then he doesn't disappear. That That's a big thing. We're like, well, wait a minute. Why didn't he? And that's kind of like the first time where we kind of had to explore. Well, maybe there's more to this, uh, this force joining thing. Yeah. And uh, I would just add that I think it's very interesting for me that the force feels very mystical, very spiritual in A New Hope. Um, Probably the most spiritual, uh, maybe Empire. I think Empire is also up there too, and and Last Jedi a, a little bit too, but you know this is kind of the original, and it's this kind of mysterious force. And I think what is what struck me as unique, I should say, is that uh, in this film, is is one of the ones where the force isn't used in a mechanical sense, because I, I think of the. Um, the Wampa cave in Empire Strikes Back, where Luke uses the force to pull the lightsaber to him. You see the force jumps and the flips and all that in you know the prequel movies. You see the force pushes in Revenge of the Sith. Um, and in A New Hope, it's you know this mystical force field that that touches all life in the galaxy and connects all life in the galaxy. And I think that's just a very interesting way to talk about the force uh that that i think gets lost a little bit in some of the other star wars films and and i kind of enjoy that in a new hope no i i really like what you were saying about um 
it not being mechanical. Because what made me think, there was one thing I left out, um, was where Luke uses the force to hit the exhaust port. And so you have this nature over mechanical, right? That seems to be, I mean, it's very much, Luke very much rejects the mechanical, like literally turns off his computer and lets the force do the job. And it's kind of like, I don't think that he's necessarily force pushing the proton torpedoes into the exhaust port. I think it's very much, he's just going to let it fly and let it be what it's going to be. And the force will take care of it. Right. Um, you have that great dichotomy where Obi-Wan mentions, you know, um, Luke says, well, does it control your actions partially, but it also obeys your commands. And so there is this really interesting balance between the two things. But I, but I do agree that for the most part, the force is very much, it's there and the Jedi or the force users in this one kind of just connect with it, except for Vader, right? He's the only one that kind of misuses. If we, if we take that as like, this is the natural way that the force uh, or how you're supposed to interact with it, right? Is that you tap into it, you're aware of it, but you're not supposed to be manipulating necessarily. And I mean, that's the thing we'll get to more and more as we get into this. Um, but I think that's a recurring theme of how you view it, whether you view it as a tool or, or, or you use it as like an ally, like, like Yoda says, right? The force is my ally. Uh, anything else in world building in the galaxy stuff that you wanted to mention uh, in this section? I think we've, uh, we've covered quite a bit. So, yeah, no, nothing, nothing in particular. Yeah, I, I mean, I just had the fact that we have the used universe, which is incredibly was groundbreaking for science fiction at the time. It looks like it's highly evolved, uh, and it's been for centuries. It's in the past that that's fascinating. People always think it's in the future. Um, and that's one thing that I like to bring up to people that have never seen it. Like notice that it says long, long, uh, long ago in a galaxy far, far away that it, that's kind of like a once upon a time type of thing that really in- indicates, Hey, this is kind of a fairy tale that's on purpose. Um, and then just the other thing, last thing it was just the sheer number of species of alien that's in this film might be more than any of the star Wars films. I mean, it is just the cantina alone. There is like one of everything. So, it's hard to keep track, but I was just like Jawa, Sand People. There's a Wookiee, Rodians, Biths, Ithorians, oh, tons. You just keep going. Yeah. And so, you know, if you really want to let your nerd flag fly, you just be like, yep, that's a Deveronian. That's a Cheddar fan right there. I think I said that right. Um, and so that's just fun. Oh, that's figuring Dan in the modal nodes. Didn't you know that? So <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, a way to just be a super dork uh, if you want to do that. Um, the last thing we would have covered is the hero's journey, but we did it already. We did that in uh, our sixth episode on the hero's journey where we covered the entire uh, hero's journey for Luke uh, for a new hope. So uh, we'll get deeper into that when we get to empire there, that journey's not over. And so we'll talk more about that um, on our next episode. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at reading between reels at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies.